0: Have your bibles and i hope that you do join me in the gospel of matthew chapter number six matthew's gospel chapter number six we're continuing in our study in the sermon on the mount and beginning what i believe to be a, a, a new section of the sermon on the mount not only is there a chapter transition here at the beginning of our text but there's something of a focus that's being shifted here as well Let's sort of walk through where we've come from and sort of set the stage for what we're going to be looking at this week and and for the next couple of weeks. We began in the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 in the passage commonly known as the Beatitudes. And there Jesus sort of sets the constitution for the kingdom that he's come to inaugurate, right? Jesus says, essentially, in essence, what he's saying there is that the kingdom of God is radically different than the kingdom of this world. We have been called by faith in Christ into that kingdom and therefore have become radically different people. The product of this new citizenship is that we see the world in radically different ways. Jesus changes everything about our life. We now see things. We now operate differently. Everything is changed because of what Jesus has done in our life. That's the kind of kingdom that Christ has invited us into. And then in a transition in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, don't don't get this mixed up. I've not come as a revolutionary. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Jesus is not coming to release us from the obligations of God's command. Jesus has come as himself, the fulfillment of God's command on our life. And in the paragraphs that follow after that, Jesus helps us by walking through various Old Testament commandments, reminding us of how they're understood inappropriately, And then teaching them accurately and helping us to feel the real weight, the conviction that's born out of embracing the whole of God's law, not just by the letter, but even the spirit of the law itself. In some ways, he's helping us to internalize the command of God on our life, reminding us that it's not the externals, it's not our religious practice that God is enamored with, it's who we are in our very hearts. Now we've come to another transition here at the beginning of of Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is going to begin to pick on this business of hypocrisy. I don't know if you know this or not, but but Jesus really hates hypocrisy. As far as I know, there's only one sin in the Bible that God says makes him sick, and it's the sin of hypocrisy, lukewarmness. It was the church at Laodicea that, that Jesus said, If I could paraphrase and sort of put it into 21st century language, y'all make me want to throw up. That's what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea. So if there's a sin that makes God sick, we want to be careful that we purge ourselves of such sin, to walk worthy of our calling, to be right with the holy God of heaven. With all of that in view, let's read together Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. If you found your way there, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Jesus says here, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people to be seen by them. Otherwise, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, will reward you may the lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word you may be seated the theme that jesus is working with here in verses one through four is that of giving but he really doesn't get to that theme until verse 2. I want you to note first what's happening in verse 1. And I want you to see how that provides us with an introduction into the, to the majority of chapter 6. Jesus says here, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people to be seen by them. Otherwise, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, what Jesus does in the next verses is to take three spiritual actions to take giving and prayer and fasting and sort of use those areas of our life to help us to evaluate ourselves. Now, He's working us through this process of understanding the high call of God on our life and personal righteousness. So we go back in Matthew 5. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. In other words, you're not off the hook for the moral standard that's established in the law and the prophets. Those are still valid for you. Those are to still be obeyed and honored in your life. And then he says, if you expect to see the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. You've got to be better than the best." folks, you know. And because Jesus knows our heart and he knows how adept we are it's sort of sidestepping his command, he comes back in Matthew 5 and verse 48 and says, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. And because again, Jesus knows how clever we are when it comes to sidestepping what he requires of us, he begins to help us with evaluating our walk with him. He begins to help us in evaluating the fruitfulness or the effectiveness of our religious practice. And I find it interesting that he takes giving and prayer and fasting as the gauges of the fruitfulness of our religious practice. We'll return to that idea in just a moment. But know what he said here. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people to be seen by them. Now, again, let's think about this in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying here, be careful not to practice your righteousness before others. He says specifically later, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But if you'll think back in your memory, Jesus said earlier in Matthew chapter 5 that you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill. And no man lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel or a basket, rather on its stand, and it gives its light to all who are in the house. You, therefore, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, which one is it, Jesus? Do we do our good works before others? Or do we operate in such a way that our left hand doesn't know what our right hand is doing? I point that out, one, to help us to sort of see both sides of this truth that Jesus is communicating, but also to help you to see that all throughout the Bible there are these double-sided truths, these unresolved tensions that are designed to help us to understand the totality of what God is doing or, in this case, what God requires in us. It is so profound what God has done for us. In this case, it's a multifaceted thing that God has called us to. It's quite difficult at times to present that in a thou shalt not kind of verse. What Jesus is saying is that you ought to be rightly motivated, although you want others to observe your good works and be uh, be sort of smitten with what God has done in your life. You want them to glorify God who is in heaven as they observe your good works, not to glorify you. That's what Jesus is saying in the passage. And to neglect either side of what Jesus is teaching is to do violence to what Jesus requires of us. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people to be seen by them. Otherwise, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. If you want no credit... If you want no benefit for any ministry, any gift, any effort that you might make spiritually, if you want no credit in heaven whatsoever, do it motivated by pride and selfish ambition. Those are the wrong motivations, right? We we oughtn't be motivated by our personal pride. If we're being judgment day honest with ourselves, sometimes it's a personal ego stroke that compels us to undertake a certain gift or a certain act of service. Sometimes it's selfishness, how something can serve our benefit somewhere down the road. If I help in this way, maybe down the road, I'll be helped in this kind of way. Kingdom giving does not operate that way. Kingdom giving expects no repayment. Kingdom giving is generous, it is liberal, it is free, and it bears no interest rate. Kingdom giving isn't done to have our ego stroked or to serve us in some special way on the backside, but to honor and glorify God who is in heaven. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of other people to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now look at verse 2. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Notice here that Jesus is operating under the assumption. There is no specific teaching. He's just teaching as though this is universally understood that God's people give generously to the poor. And you ought to give generously to the poor. That is, identifying those who may be disadvantaged, those around you who may be in a time of need, and to be willing to give to them generously, liberally, regularly, to give to them with a kingdom kind of focus. I would even go beyond that and say that not only should we as individual Christians give generously to the poor, we collectively as a body ought to give generously to the needs of those around us. That is, our church budget should be reflective of our. Interest in meeting the ministry needs of those within our community and maybe even under certain circumstances, those who may be abroad. Think for just a moment. There they're really, and I may be missing something here. If I am, you can fill me in later. But as best I can tell, there, there are really two areas to which the Bible calls us to give as followers of Jesus. There is what Jesus describes here, what I'll describe. He calls them poor. I'll I'll call it benevolent ministries. It's it's not just those who are uh, poor in a financial sense who may have a real need. There may be other disadvantages that those around us are facing, uh, disadvantages that we might have the ability to minister to. So you have sort of benevolent, benevolent ministries on the one hand, and then kingdom ministries on the other. These are the two areas of focus with regards to giving in the New Testament, as best I can tell. If you're a student of the New Testament, I would challenge you to give some time to thinking about how much of the New Testament is pulled together around a shared concern to give collectively to see the gospel advanced. Think of the book of Romans. Paul writes to the church in Rome, hoping to establish a missions outpost that the gospel could go as far west as Spain. He wanted to establish Rome as the city from which he would be sent forth, and financial help would be a part of that. Not only does Paul intend to go westward from the city of Rome, he also intends that the people of Rome, specifically Gentile people, would be able to help accommodate and meet needs that existed at that hour in the region of Judea, where there were believing saints suffering with the great famine. Think of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. There are full chapters given in those books to the collection of what amounted to a first century Lottie Moon Christmas offering that the gospel could make its way to the ends of the known world. Think about 1st Thessalonians, the book that we looked at briefly last Sunday together. Paul is writing to thank them for their generosity. Philippians and Philemon, both books focused on someone's generosity from a distance, the collection of a gift in order to see that the kingdom was advanced. So we see these examples of kingdom-focused giving and benevolent giving happening throughout both Old and New Testaments. Those are the kind of factors that ought to drive us to be willing to give and to give quite generously. When you give to the poor again, Jesus says, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. He's not talking metaphorically here about drawing attention to yourself. He's speaking to very real practices in the first century, the sounding of the trumpet. And if it wasn't the actual sounding of the trumpet in the sense of a horn, it was the sounding of a trumpet in the sense that you would make sure that, uh, that you didn't have folding money in your gift. It would be as heavy as it could possibly be so that its clank would be loud when it was placed or tossed into the coffers and everyone would know that you had given a generous donation by the sound or the volume of the sound as you made your gift either in the box or in the coffers there near the temple. Jesus says when we give, our focus is not drawing attention to ourselves, but drawing glory and honor and praise to our Father who is in heaven. We need to be careful or cautious about this sort of thing. In, in, my, in my first pastorate, young pastors are always much more zealous than they are wise. And we had this, we had this practice during the Christmas season, and, and this was my first one, and I'd kind of made some objections, but I, I, no one really wanted to hear what I had to say. But when it came to, that was kind of my first ministry in a nutshell. No one wanted to hear what I had to say. And, and so we would come during the Christmas season, and, and they would put this big artificial arrangement on the communion table that was filled with candles, And and we would all give our Lottie Moon offering on that Sunday. And and the way that would happen was we would come out of our pew and down to the front and light a candle and make the gift and then tell everyone why we were giving the gift or in someone's honor or memory that we were giving the gift. Now, in hindsight, probably innocent enough, but as a 23-year-old preacher, I'm reading the Bible and I'm thinking, now we're dangerously close over here, you know. And this is all going pretty smooth, you know. They're coming one by one, and it goes on, and it goes on, and it's getting into my preaching time, but it goes on, and it goes on. And then, and then Miss Karen came, and she lit her candle, and the wick was probably a little longer than it needed to be. And as she turned and began to share with the congregation, the flame got a little taller than it needed to be. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen an artificial arrangement go up, but it happens fast. It happens really fast. And it burns with black smoke. And I was sitting on the platform watching all those people watch that artificial arrangement burn. And I thought, I told you all what was going to happen. (laughs) We need to be careful that we guard against 21st century examples of sounding the trumpet. Or giving weighted offerings to draw attention to ourselves. Now let me come back on the other side of that and say this. This is not... A prohibition against having conversations with regards to giving, or in the case of next week's text, prayer and fasting. In fact, we need more conversations about giving, about prayer, and about fasting, only we need them in the right kind of spirit. We don't need the sounding of the trumpet, But we do need humble-hearted conversations about how giving looks in my life personally, about how prayer looks in my life personally, about how fasting looks in my life personally. In fact, I, I think our misunderstanding of what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount on fasting is the reason fasting is almost completely absent from the life of most followers of Christ. This is not a prohibition against talking about these matters. But it is a warning to us that our goal here is not to draw attention to ourselves, but glory to our God. And and by the way, isn't it enough to know that there may come a day when at the end of a life well lived, that on the basis of a generous gift, on the basis of a warm-hearted prayer life, on the basis of regular seasons of fasting during which we are brought near to God, that we may stand before the God of heaven and hear him say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Isn't that enough? Jesus said, be careful about seeking out the applause of people. I assure you, he says, they've got their reward. Jesus will warn us later against laying up treasure where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in to steal. And the admonition there is that we lay up treasure where nor, neither moth nor rust can destroy and where there are no thieves to break in and to steal. We give, we pray, we fast, we seek the face of God in a way that invests eternally, in a way that pays dividends a million years from now verse 3, Jesus says, When you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There's a great deal more that could be said that perhaps should be said about giving. It's the kind of subject matter that we're really reluctant about talking about. I, I will confess, I'm always a little hesitant when it comes to talking about Giving in general. I I guess the the fear of a misperception is ever present in talking about these kinds of issues. But I I would note there's just no getting around in the Sermon on the Mount the way Jesus deals with personal finance. And I don't think it's because Jesus has this obsession with personal finance. I just think it's one of those deals where if you really want to evaluate a person's heart, look at where they're invested. Look at where they're invested financially, look at where they're invested in terms of, of time commitment. You've experienced this in your own personal life. What I think is clear, the pattern that's established elsewhere in the Bible, and is at least implied heavily in our passage, is that we should give consistently, we should give generously, and we should give with discretion. That is, we should give discreetly, not so that others would see us so much, as that God would be pleased with us, that God would be glorified through the generosity of his people. Now, I think I said this in the beginning. If I didn't, I'll say it now. Giving is the theme here, but I don't want you to miss what Jesus is driving at in this whole section. Jesus uses the language of hypocrite again and again and again and again. What what I want you to see is that Jesus has put it down big and bold in the Sermon on the Mount that he is not impressed with your religious practice. That it's not the externals, Jesus is not impressed with your credentials. Jesus is not impressed with your church attendance. What Jesus looks upon is the heart. And we can sometimes fake it till we make it, right? You can fool your family. You can fool your friends. You can fool the pastor at times. But you will never fool the all-seeing God of heaven. Jesus says again, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people. Guard yourself against the kind of behavior that's customary to hypocrites. And I would think in our culture, where hypocrisy is such a distasteful thing, there'd be a real draw to what Jesus is describing in our passage. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. Jesus does not like hypocrites. Hypocrisy is all about acting like we're something that we're not. That's what it's all about. Jesus uses the same language in next week's message with regards to prayer. He talks about public prayer. And again, he's not saying that you can't pray publicly, but what I do think Jesus is saying there is that the requirement for public prayer is a healthy private prayer life. And the requirement from G- if we're taking this passage, we run this through our Christian experience, the requirement for heartfelt public worship is heartfelt private worship. The requirement for, for publicly gathering together in the name of Jesus is a private devotional life that's warm-hearted and, and spirit-filled. We, we can fake it till we make it. Again, we can do all the stuff, and it can, it can really look impressive at times. But I want you to know this morning that there is an all-seeing God in heaven who knows about the absence of prayer in your life, you, you, you can track in my life, and the same is true for you. The ebbs and flows in my spiritual walk with Jesus are the same. They're concurrent with the ebbs and flows in my personal prayer life. You can go to church. You can read your Bible. You can tithe 10%. You can do all of the things that are sort of customary in the Christian experience and be prayerless about it. That's practical atheism. And there's lots of Christian folks who practice that religion. See why Jesus is meddling into these areas of our life? While Jesus is kneeling on, on ideas like giving, and prayer, and fasting, these are the kind of things that happen when no one else is watching except Jesus. Jesus is unimpressed with our religious experience. What he desires is a heart that, that loves him, that treasures him, that cherishes him. I, I talked to you a moment ago about this tension that exists, Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Those are all over the Bible. Now I want to tell you about one more. It's in the gospel. When Jesus says, repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, Jesus says, repent, turn away from your sin. Measure up to the standard of righteousness that I've established for you. Labor and strain and strive to be holy, for I am holy. That's what repentance is about. And then he says, believe. Believe that I'm God's only son who died in your place, rose again the third day, and rest in that faith. He says, labor and strain and strive. And then he says in the gentle voice of the Savior, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In the last 10 or 12 hours, maybe 12 to 14 hours, late yesterday, I found myself in conversation with a couple of gentlemen that I take to be lost, talking about this business of repentance and belief. And both would confess or affirm that Jesus exists. You know, That's like, like base level, right? They would confess or affirm the truth of the gospel. They would say, yes, that is right. Yes, that is true. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. But both of them would refuse to turn away from their sin and to find rest in Jesus. What they have is half of the gospel. And as a result, what they have is zero of Jesus. Repent, Jesus says, and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And to fail to embrace either aspect of the gospel is to do violence to the message of our Savior Jesus Christ. Even as Jesus, line by line by line, calls upon the people of God to labor and to strain and to strive, he constantly whispers to his people, come to me, come to me, come to me, and I will give you rest. Are you repentant this morning? Have you turned away from the things of this world Are you you pursuing the standard of God in your life? Can you hear ringing in your memory the call of God, be holy for I am holy? For those of you who are discouraged and frustrated at the end of your rope, laboring and straining and striving, can you hear the still small voice of the Savior who says, come to me Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light, for I am gentle and lowly of spirit. Are you repentant? Are you trusting Christ? That even in your faithlessness, He is faithful. Is He the treasure of your heart? the Savior of your soul. Do you know him? Let's bow before him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and the chance to spend these moments together considering your word and what it holds forth for us. God, I I pray that you would help us as a body to know you more. I, I pray that you would chase away unbelief. God, that you would grant us great faith. That in the next moments, God, you would save the lost, That you would stir revival and renewal in the hearts of your people. That sinners would be called away from their sin and into repentance, God. That you would break our heart even over our secret sin. I pray, God, that the testimony that that was bore in the baptistry, God, would, would have its way in the hearts of your people, that there would be good, clear understanding of the gospel by all who are gathered here. We pray that you would grant eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to discern rightly your word. Help us to hear and understand what it means to say repent and believe. God, help us to not miss the message of your call on our life to be gracious toward those around us. Make of us cheerful, glad-hearted givers, open-handed people who would give to see the needs of those around us met and the gospel advanced. God, help us. Forgive us. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name.